Our Lord and God, we honor, praise and glorify you, you alone. You are creator and sustainer of all things. We ask that tonight as your word goes forth that you and you alone would be glorified and that our view of you would be become clearer and grander and that our response, Lord, would be to fall down and worship you as we on our knees are in awe of your your mystery and your wonder. Use me for your glory. I decrease so that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. Have your way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, again, thank you for joining us for our midweek service of worship. We are continuing our, our new series called The Doctrine of God, or as it is most historically known as Theology proper. You may have never have heard that, that phrase. Theology proper. The doctrine of God. Theology proper. Last week we undoubtedly dove into the very depths of theology proper. We attempted together, I, I think, to climb the highest peak, Mount Everest, if you will, of the doctrine of the Trinity, theology proper, the doctrine of the Trinity, by addressing the glorious doctrine, again, of the Trinity. And and I will say that Pastor Zay did a fine job. He did a fine job of presenting the doctrine of the Trinity. And it was one of the more simplistic sermons on the Trinity that you will hear out there. There are a number of sermons on the Trinity. That one was one of the more simplistic sermons On the Trinity. And may I encourage you, we may jump into the depths of the mysteries of God only to fervently swim back to shore, vowing never to return to those depths again. There is great mystery. There is great wonder. But, dear ones, trust that God the Holy Spirit will be faithful to be your helper and the one who teaches you as you trust in him while you are in those depths. So while we are there, trust that he will help you and be your guide. We will acknowledge with Paul often, Romans 11, now here we are, 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. We will say that often, and when we do, we are in good company. The Apostle Paul, no less, proclaims, oh, the depths. So when you find yourselves in that position, know again that you are in good company. I say that for all of us, even for those who are young here today, though you may be sitting here and saying, I don't understand all of this. Trust that God, the Holy Spirit will help you. Trust that God, the Holy Spirit will help you. Amen. As we do this, I believe that, oh, the depths will probably be the the saying that is most often on our lips. Oh, the depths. And the doctrine of the Trinity is without question the most, 
mysterious and perplexing, confusing, if you will, of all doctrines. Why is the doctrine of the Trinity so hard for us to comprehend? You ever thought about that? How many how many people have have erred in trying to explain or understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Why is it? Why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? What are the barriers? What are the the obstacles that come with this particular doctrine that tempt us to walk away from the doctrine, shaking and scratching our heads? What what are the, the obstacles? Brothers and sisters, the doctrine of the Trinity demands that we think and speak in ways that are beyond our comprehension. It demands that we think and speak in ways that are beyond, that are beyond us. We are forced by Scripture to speak in terms that are foreign to us by nature. What do I mean by that? I mean this. God is one but three. And three but one. Just saying that alone causes great confusion. God is three and yet one. Or one and yet three. To us, that is crazy talk. Right? All three persons, eternally one and yet eternally distinct. That kind of language makes no sense to us. And brothers and sisters, we say again, oh, the depths, oh, the depths. And yet the doctrine of the Trinity is without question the core doctrine of the Christian faith. It is central to the Christian faith. If you do not believe in the Trinity, if one rejects the doctrine of the Trinity, then they are outside of the pale of orthodoxy. Or, as was said last week, if you reject the Trinity, you also reject Christianity, orthodox Christianity. Herman Herman Bobbink said, you can go to the next page, sister. There it is. Concerning the Trinity, the entire Christian belief system, all of special revelation, stands or falls with the confession of God's Trinity. It is the core of the Christian faith, the root of all its dogmas, the basic content of the new covenant. Again, if one rejects the doctrine of the Trinity, then they reject Christianity and they are outside of orthodoxy. This may sound like a particularly provocative statement, but biblically, it's true. According to scripture, you cannot reject the Trinity And call yourself a true believer. As Pastor Zay said last week, should be there. Holding to the classical orthodox view of the Trinity is like walking down a tight rope. We balance ourselves with the biblical descriptions of who God is. One God in Trinity. Trinity in unity. What a great saying that is. One God in Trinity. Trinity in unity. Now don't get that tattooed, any of you tattoo people. But... It is a great saying. One God in Trinity, Trinity in unity. There is one true God. Scripture identifies God as being three persons 
who are eternally distinct. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three are one. They are co-equal and co-eternal in their divinity. Brothers and sisters, let us be ever so careful when attempting, and I say attempting, to come up with or conjure analogies in order to describe who God is. The one but three, three but one. We've heard them, right? The Trinity is like an egg. We heard this last week, remember? We have the egg white, the egg yolk, and the shell. And they are all one, right? We heard that last week. We heard that the Trinity is like water. Water has three states, solid, liquid, gas, right? We also, last week, heard from a dear brother, and it was a good attempt, that the Trinity is like a Power Ranger. (laughs) A great attempt. And the thing about this is this. Those are all well-intended. You hear that? They are well-intended attempts to explain the Trinity. Or we can think of a a three-leaf clover, right? There are three. They are on one stem. We can think of all of these different, and they are well-intended. The person who is attempting to explain the Trinity or give analogies for the Trinity is not intentionally trying to be heretical. And yet, they end up being heretical without even intending to be. Most often, when we attempt to give analogies concerning the Trinity, most often, we will be biblically inaccurate. And, sadly to say, even sometimes downright heretical. And and here's the thing, guys. Again, well-intended, and yet always falling short. Well-intended, and yet always falling short in explaining the uniqueness of our triune God. Our aim tonight in this series is not to make the doctrine of the Trinity less mysterious. You hear that? The aim is not to make the doctrine of the Trinity less mysterious. How could we? In fact, as we plunge into the depths of this great doctrine... I believe that you will find that the Trinity will become even more mysterious for you, as it has been for us. So tonight, there is one point, one point with three subpoints. So the main point tonight is this, the biblical witness to Trinitarianism. There it is there. The biblical witness to Trinitarianism. I'll give you a moment to write that down. And there are some uh, terms that will be helpful for you as we go forward in this lesson. We've got that there. Great. Let's go to the terms that are going to be helpful for you in this series. Whoa, hello. Okay. Some of you are going to have to use your supervision to see that. And if you can't see it, it's okay. That's where you keep going. Keep going. Yeah, you're you're right there. Uh huh. Maybe you can blow that up for me. Just exit out of it, highlight it, and then blow it up. So I'll say those words, and then we can go back, and you guys can get the um, the definition. So essence. <laughs> Don't watch that. Listen to me. Essence. Okay. Essence. 
That's the first word. Another word is going to be substance. Substance. The third one is nature. Okay, so I'll pause right there. So we have essence, substance, and nature. Okay. Essence, substance, nature. And let, let me give you a quick, if you're taking notes, here's, here's a quick definition of essence. It is this. It is what you are. Essence is what you are. What are you? Someone's saying an H word. You're human. So the essence of who you are is human, right? You are human. Substance. Substance. What, what, what do you think substance means? Substance is, think about it. It's what you're made of, right? It's substance. When you have conversations, you want conversations with substance, right? Things that are making up a good conversation. What makes you up? What, what are the things that make you up as a human being or human? What are the things that make you up? What is your substance? Flesh and bone, right? You are flesh and bone. Another one, we said nature. A nature or nature is what makes you distinct. You are unlike birds of the air and beasts of the field. Your nature is human. You are a human being, right? Person is the last word. Person. So we have essence, substance, nature, and person. Essence, substance, nature, person. Person. What is that? It's who you are. You are individually a person. I am not like you. You are not like me in our personage. We are different persons. Though we are both human, we are different persons. Okay? These terms are important in understanding the Trinity because they will help us at least better understand. Not fully understand, but at least better understand the Trinity. Amen? As we lay the foundation for the Trinity, there are three pillars for this great doctrine. Pillar number one. These are our sub points. Okay, so you could say one A, one B, one C. Pillar number one. There is one God. Can we get those back now? Maybe we can go go that way and see how it looks. I don't know if all the rest of it is looking that way. Go ahead and try, please. Is it all small? Is it? Okay. Are you guys following along okay as we're, as I'm saying these things? Okay, so pillar number one, there is one God. Let's go to one verse, can we? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, 4. And I made, whoa, no, that's not going to happen. Okay. Sorry, guys. I don't know how that happened, but we'll work it out. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Are we there? Great. I'm going to read it. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is how many? One. We believe that there is one God. Christianity is a monotheistic, meaning one God, religion. I can remember speaking with three Muslims at the marketplace. And their greatest accusation against us, you and I, was that we believe in, guess what? Three gods. Not a trinity, but we believe in three gods. Trinity, meaning triunity, three gods. That they were saying, you don't believe in one god, you believe in three gods. Well, it's very hard to say to them, no, we believe in one god who is eternally, distinctly three persons. That makes no sense to us. Of course not, because you're unregenerate. Anyways, the Bible could not be any more clear on this fundamental truth. We see, oh, that's a little bit better, I think. Keep going. We see monotheism revealed to us in the story of Israel. Again, we've read from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. It was central to Israel's faith. The confession of the Lord being one is what distinguished Israel from their surrounding neighbors. How many how many gods do you think the surrounding neighbors of Israel worshipped? How many? Many. They were polytheists, meaning many gods, or they worshipped many gods. And here you have Israel, distinct from all of the surrounding nations who worships one god. Deuteronomy 4:35 it was it or to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God there is no other besides him write these verses down Isaiah 45:5 Isaiah 45:5 and it says this I am the Lord there is no other besides me there is no god I equip you though you do not know me Isaiah 44, 6, write that down. It says, besides me, there is no God. And write down Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. And you can go back and read those later. Malachi 2, 10, write that down. James 2, 19, write that down. Romans 3, 30, write that down. What are all of these verses? They are pointing to the one true God. The one true God. I'll say those verses again. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Malachi 2.10. James 2.19. Romans 3.30. Please go home and as Pastor John says, do the homework. Our confession of faith in the second chapter, our uh, London Baptist confession of faith says God of the Holy Trinity or of God and the Holy Trinity. The Lord our God is but one true living God or Our Lord God is but one only living and true God. So the first pillar of this doctrine of the Trinity is this. God is one. Don't be distracted by this, okay? You're like seeing all this stuff go. Pay attention here, okay? That's okay. Work it out. And could you turn the air on for us, please? Thank you. All right. This is going to be fun for people who are listening on the podcast. They're like, what is going on in this church? (laughs) It's all right. This is always for you first. This is not for them first. It's always for you first. So first is we worship one God, not three gods, one 
holy, true, and living God, as question 10 of our catechism says. Pillar 2. God is three. God is three. Thank you. God is three. I'd like you to notice this. Matthew... I mean, hopefully I'm saying that right. No one's getting like, what? Three gods? No. uh, Follow me. Matthew 28, 19. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Because I just noticed it today in reading or hearing a Spurgeon sermon. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. How many of you know that verse? Now, I'd like you to notice something interesting about that verse. Jesus says to baptize in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does he not? But does he say names? Or does he say name? Isn't that interesting? That in speaking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ does not say baptizing them in the names, but rather in the name. And then he goes to mention three distinct persons who are eternally one. Interesting. Thank you, Charles Spurgeon. Scripture identifies God as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all being God. And we confess that there is only one God. And Scripture also identifies God as three persons who are fully and eternally God. Who is God? The Father is God. So here's a little, another sub point, okay? Sorry for all these sub points. It's Isaiah's fault. These are his notes. The Father is God. Write that down if you would. We're talking about three. The Father is God or the deity of the Father. Let me ask you a question. Do any of you have any qualms? Do any of you debate in your mind whether or not the Father is God? Anybody at all? Anybody dare deny that the Father is God? I dare to say there is not one person who would argue that the Father is God. Now, here's how I know this. Because most often when we pray, we most often address only the Father. And we most often fail to acknowledge the Son or the Holy Spirit. And yet we claim and believe that they are eternally one and equal. But yet so often we only address the Father. So then is the Son a lesser God? Is the Spirit a lesser God? Then why in our prayers do we only talk to the Father? Food for thought. Write these scriptures down. These are evidence that the Father is God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Ephesians 4, 6. Ephesians 1, 3. I'll say those one more time and you would, you would also see them up there, okay? 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Ephesians 4, 6, Ephesians 1, 3. These verses clearly point to the fact that the Father is 100% fully God. Second one, 
the deity of Christ, or Jesus Christ is God. Okay, <laughs> very good. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. The Lord Jesus Christ claims that he is equal with the Father. He and the Father share the same essence or being. The Nicene Creed, look at this up there, put it this way. Jesus Christ being of one substance with the Father. Meaning this, that Jesus is the same in being, nature or essence, or even substance as the Father. Just as our children are as fully human as we are, so Jesus Christ, the only eternally begotten Son, is just like, or not like, just as God. Not like, just as God. He and the Father, they share equally Godness. Are you with me? They share equally Godness. Jesus is not like the Father. He's not lesser than the Father. He is fully God, just as the Father is fully God. Amen. Are we together? This also points to the unity that exists within the Godhead. The Father and the Son are distinct persons, and yet they are eternally one. They are eternally united. What does the Bible say in John 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Apostle John goes to the extent of not just saying that Jesus was with God, but also taking it a step further and saying Jesus, the Word, was, is God. Jesus and the Father Co-equal and co-eternal. Jesus is fully God. Write these verses down. Colossians 2, 9 through 10. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And then I'd like you to notice something. Go to the next page. I'd like you to notice what Colossians specifically says about Jesus. And then let's come to some conclusions based upon what scripture says about Jesus. Verse 15. Go up, sister. Keep going. Keep going. Keep it going. Keep it going. One more time. Oh, you got to keep on going. I'll help you. Verse 15 of Colossians. This is uh, Colossians 1. Okay. Of Colossians 1, 15. The Bible says this. He's the image of the invisible God. Verse 16. The creator of all. Verse 17. Eternal and holds all things together. Verse 18, head of the church, first fruits of the harvest. Verse 19, Christ, the fullness of God. And verse 20, through Christ, we have peace with God. That is a lot of, of evidence that points to Jesus not being a merely or merely man, but also being God. That's in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Jesus is fully God. Thomas, what did he say after seeing the resurrected Jesus? What did he say? My Lord and my God. Giving him the title of, as Isaiah said last week, Yahweh. Giving him the title of Old Testament God, Yahweh. Jesus is truly God. More verses for you to write down. 
Titus 2.13. John 10.30-33. Matthew 14.33. Those should all be up there. Got them? You see them? Well, I'm saying one more time. Titus 2.13. John 10.30-33. And Matthew 14.33. One more. John 5.20. Are we there? Are we good? Great. Let's move forward. The Holy Spirit is God or the deity of the Holy Spirit. Are we together? Is this messing you up over here? Okay, (laughs) you're trying your best. The deity of the Holy Spirit of the Holy Spirit. Genesis. Let's go to Genesis one. First book of the Bible. Let's go there quickly so we can stop in just a few minutes. Genesis one. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Isn't it interesting that there are no other things that are present No other beings that are present with God as he creates the world except God, his word and his spirit. Anything that is present with God as he creates, what would we have to call that? Anything that is a witness to God as he creates, what would we have to call those things or those people? God. If there was anything present as God is saying, let there be, then those things are, are joining in with God as he creates. Which is why we do not say that God was merely hanging out with angels. And angels were witnesses to the creation. If angels were witnesses, then they were also partakers in the creation. Therefore, God, who stands alone, eternally one but three, with his word... Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit, created all things and made all things to be. We'll get more into this when we get into our Genesis series in a few, a week. Write these verses down. Acts 5, 3 through 4. This is the, the, the account of Peter, Ananias, and Sapphira. What is the charge against Ananias and Sapphira? Who have they lied to? Who? The Holy Spirit. They, they are lying to, blaspheming the Holy Spirit by their lies. To blaspheme someone is to attribute what to them? Is to call them a what? A God. If you say, uh, Mark is a golfer. Mark is a terrible golfer. And someone who knows how good Mark is, someone... You're speaking blasphemy against Mark. Well, Mark is not a god. There's a, a, an, an ESPN av- analyst whose name is Stephen A. Smith. Some of you may have heard of him. He's a riot. But anytime someone speaks negatively about Michael Jordan, he says, I will not hear your blasphemy. Well, what is he e- equating Michael Jordan to be? A god. When Peter speaks of 
this blasphemous lie from Ananias and Sapphira. He attributes their lie being against the Holy Spirit, who is God. Satan has filled your heart, they said, he said, to lie to the Holy Spirit. John fourteen sixteen, ask or I will and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a helper. Which translated in the Greeks in the Greek, another like himself, another of the same being of the same essence. Now, if Jesus is calling the Holy Spirit someone the same as him and we are saying that Jesus is also the same as the father, then what does that make the Holy Spirit? God. Do you see the progression there or do you see the connection there? If, if Jesus is, is the same as the Father and Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is the same as himself, then what does that make the Holy Spirit? God. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Stop playing over there. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He's involving himself. Or involving the Trinity in that great triune work of God in bringing many sons to glory. Amen. So the Holy Spirit is co-equal with the Son and the Father. And based on the biblical witness of Scripture, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully God. Last point. Can you take it? Let's do it. The distinctiveness or the distinctions in the persons of the Trinity, of the Godhead. Or the Trinity are three distinct persons. Uh, question 10 of our catechism. How many persons are in the Godhead? Three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Question 10. No, question 9. Based on the witness of Scripture, it is clear that each person, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are distinct persons. Persons. Does that word confuse anyone? Persons. Bible speaks of the Father, Philippians 1, 2. The Son, Titus 1, 2, 13. And the Holy Spirit, Acts 5, 3, as being distinct persons who are yet God. Doesn't that make us tri-theist? People who worship three gods? Isn't that what that, that points to? Remember, there is only one being of God, and yet there are three divine persons. How? How can there be one God, but each person of the Godhead fully God? Doesn't that mean three gods? Is it safe to say? Can we say? Is it okay to say that we worship three gods? No. Why not? Scripture will not allow it. That's why. Scripture will not allow it. Scripture will not allow us to say that we worship three gods because God is clearly one. We have said that the word, we have said the word quite often tonight, but let's make a distinction. Between being and person. Between being and person. Now, this is going to sound philosophical, but it's biblical, I promise you. Everything that exists has 
being. Everything that exists has, you have being, I have being. Your being is limited to time and especially right now space. Your being is limited right now to time and to space. You, you can't tr- transcend time and you cannot transcend your space. Your space is being occupied right now by a chair. And you are confined right now to time. That is your being. Your being is finite and it's limited. Your being is changeable and your being, again, is limited. Are we all on the same page? You share being with someone. Guess who? Yourself. (laughs) You share being with yourself. Your being is who you are. You are a human being. God's being is infinite. God's being is eternal. God is not confined by time and space. We're going to talk about this when we get to Genesis. Even us saying God is omnipresent. Even the word omnipresent is limiting God to space. Although it is an accurate attribute of God, it is also a a tempting or it is also it can be be misleading into confining God. To infinity. God is beyond even infinite. So we say all space. God is everywhere. Well, when you think about everywhere, we might even be confining God to where everywhere is. And God is not even confined to where everywhere is. He's beyond even the everywhere that we can imagine in our minds. He's beyond omniscient or, or, or omnipresent. Lay down in your, in your bed tonight and think about that. God is beyond time. God is, it transcends time. He's not bound by time. There is no time that, bi- that binds God. Time binds you and I. We wear watches to make sure that we are on time. We go to bed at certain times. We wake up at certain times. God knows nothing of time. He transcends time. God, God's being is infinite, eternal, and fully shared by three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are fully God, co-equal, and co-eternal. Isaiah said last week, and I like this, this saying, one what, three who's. One what, three who's. There it is. And they are distinct from one another. For example, and, and the, this is very important. This has all been very important. Since the Father sent the Son into the world, John 3.16, He cannot be the same person as the Son. Likewise, the Son returned to the Father. And the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit into the world. Therefore, the Holy Spirit must be distinct from the Father and the Son. They are distinct persons. 
and they can be viewed in relationship between within this relationship between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Athanasian Creed, and we are coming to a close. The Father neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. The personal distinction within the persons of the Trinity, found in unbegottenness, begottenness, and procession, Deep, praise God. Beyond you, praise God. That's the point. That's the point. If you're, you're becoming more and more in awe of, of not just the language, brothers and sisters, but the mystery, then praise God. You're getting the point. That's the point. The Father is unbegotten. The Son, eternally begotten from the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. These relations of generation and procession distinguish the persons from one another. Think about this. You ever think about each person's role, even in salvation? What do they do in salvation? In in redemption, the Father sends the Son into the world for our redemption. What does the Son do? The Son acquires our redemption. And then what does the Spirit do? He applies redemption to us. To the elect of God. Do we have three gods? We have one in three persons. You're you're hearing this same thing in different ways tonight. That's one of the, the... If you're a teacher... That's one of the great tricks of teaching, saying the same thing over and over again in different ways and engagingly. Paul was a master at that, as was Jesus. This is probably where he learned it from. So what have we learned so far in closing? There is one God. There is one being who is God. Scripture identifies three distinct Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal. In their, in their divinity. All God. Now, as we close. Where would you point to in scripture? To say, there they are. There they are. All three at the same time. Where would you go? If someone was to say, show me all three at the same time. Where would you go? What would you show them? Genesis what? Okay. Okay. Genesis, you're probably thinking of 126. Let us. Okay. Think of another one. The baptism of Jesus. Very good. Yeah. That's actually one of our first ones. Did he cheat? Okay. (laughs) Matthew 316. That's there. What else? What other one? You'll see them a lot in the Pauline epistles. Let me give them to you so we can go. First Corinthians 12, four. There's one. Ephesians 4 4. There's another. Galatians 4 4. And you can read all the way to, I think, 6. There's another. Isaiah identified these last week as triadic patterns. You see that word there? There it is. Triadic patterns. And here's some other ones. And they're everywhere in Scripture, they're all over the place. So, brothers and sisters, as we close, what. Do we apply from all of this?
Because that is what we most often look for, isn't it? Great truths, and then we always want to find out, what do I do with it? What does that mean for me and in my life? I would say this. If we come as we come to the end of this teaching and you are saying to yourself, wow, wow, my mind is blown by the, the majesty, the mystery, the wonder of God, then brother, sister, friend, that's the point. There is your application. Bow your knee before your God. That's the application. If you can sit there tonight and say, mind blown all over my chair, then glory be to God. Because God the Holy Spirit has done his work in and through his word to bring you to a place where you sit as you are in awe of your God. Be in awe of him. Be in awe of his infinite wonder and ask yourself along with David, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who am I that in the mystery of your wonder and know that God within the Trinity needed nothing. He needed no one. He did not create us because he was lonely. He did not create us for friendship. He needed nothing within himself. He was perfectly content within the eternal Godhead. And yet, he chose lovingly to create a people for his son, to give to his son a bride, and that his son would go And lay down his life for that bride. And that the spirit. The spirit would apply that a redemption. And live in us. Be now as we are. His temple. That we may. Make the good news of Jesus Christ known in this world. Here's your second application. So number one. Worship him. Number two. It is a safeguard against heresy. It is a safeguard against heresy. It is a safeguard against those who will come to you and say, Jesus was a great man, but he was not a God man. It is a safeguard against those who will say to you, the Holy Spirit, it is powerful. It is a force to be reckoned with. We do not live in Star Wars. It is not a force. He is eternally God, co-equal with the Father and the Son. Dig into these verses. Dig into what you've heard tonight. Albeit faster, I know, or fast. But take your time. Be convinced. Before you came in here, you already were convinced of the Trinity. But did you know why? Before you came in here, you were already a believer. You had faith and believed in the triune God. But did you understand the distinctions? And you may not even now, but at least you know there is. Amen. Let us pray.
Our Lord and God, we thank you for grace, for mercy, and for sending your Son to die for us. Not to earn love so that the Father would then love us. The Son was sent by the Father as a love gift to the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. And Holy Spirit, we do praise you for applying redemption to our dead souls. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. And you brought us to life through the gospel, faith, and grace. We do praise you. Be glorified in your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.